0: You may be seated. Thank you for your singing this morning. Thank you, Jesse, for leading us. If you do have your Bibles, if you'd open them to Deuteronomy 12, Deuteronomy 12 will be in chapters 12 and 13 this morning. And as you're turning, um, I'll do my best to recap quickly and remind you where we've been, get us all on the same page, and kind of jog our memories this morning. Uh, the Israelites are on the east side of the Jordan River. God has been promising them that they will have a land. And they are so close now that they can see that land. And uh, And yet, they are still on the other side of the Jordan River. They know that they will be facing uh, the obstacle of armies and giants and um, enemies that are across the land that they will have to defeat to be able to acquire the land God's promised them. And so before they go over into the land, God... Through Moses gives them one final charge uh, it's Moses' final sermon it's his farewell address to the people of Israel because I'll remind you he is not going into the land with them that as a result of his own sin God told him the consequences of those sin is that um, that he would not be able to enter into the land and so Moses begins this final sermon and what we see in the first four chapters are a history lesson he reminds them of their unfaithfulness and the consequences of their sin And yet God's faithfulness, that God is a promise-keeping God despite their sinfulness. And uh, moving into chapter 5, he moves out of this history lesson and begins to give them principles that they should live by. uh, Stipulations of the covenant, that God has said, I'll make you my people, these are the ways that you'll live as my people. And I'll remind you that in those uh, those chapters, from chapter 5 to chapter 11 that we finished last week, Uh, Those chapters of principles are general principles. They're general stipulations that the people should live by. So you have in that the Ten Commandments. They're general, wide-sweeping rules that the people should live by. Uh, Chapter 6, you see, love the Lord. It's a sweeping principle that the people should live by. Chapters 8, 9, and 10, we saw this idea of remembering the Lord, not allowing our wealth or the, the, the struggles that we go through to take our eyes off of Jesus who's saved us, the, the God of Israel. And so we're told to remember the Lord. That's a general principle. And then last week, based on these general principles, based on these ideas, these stipula- stipulations of the covenant, um, what will we choose? It was kind of the question that, that, uh, that Moses left the people with. Will you choose obedience And blessing, or we choose disobedience and curse. You remember that. He sets forth Mount Gerizim as a mountain of blessing and uh, Mount Ebal as a mountain of cursing and says that choose today, choose. The way you will go, will it be obedience or disobedience? And so today we move into chapter 12. And this will be a, uh, another uh, part of Moses' farewell address, another part of his sermon. Uh, we're really kind of shifting gears again. It'll still be principles that God's people should live by, stipulations of the covenant. But now they're going to be much more specific. They're going to be much more detail-oriented. He'll he'll take uh, the Ten Commandments as kind of a general outline uh, and and say, uh, build upon them and, and say, these are the details of the covenant. These are the specifics of these Ten Commandments and these principles that we should be living by. And as you can imagine, where does he start? He starts with our worship. He starts with our hearts. He starts with the first commandment, that you shall love the Lord your God and have no gods but him. You should not make any images. So today, really, in chapters 12 and 13, we see exposition on or commentary on the first two commandments. Um, And so we'll see as we walk through the text uh, kind of four ideas or four points, four themes that we see in chapters 12 and 13 that I think we can learn from today in our context that deal with our worship, Um, because that's what he's dealing with in chapters 12 and 13. So number one... uh, Number one, we put an end to false worship. We put an end to false worship. And we see this in verses 1 through 4, and then we see it in verses 29 through 32. And so they kind of serve as bookends for chapter 12. It's the way he starts, and it's the way he ends. And so all of chapter 12 and really chapter 13 are dealing with uh, false worship, things that we would worship that are not God himself and dealing with those things. And it really does uh, set the, the, the bookends and it sets the importance of these chapters between these two themes, uh, or this one theme, these two places, chapters, or chapter 12, 1 through 4, and chapter 12, 29 through 32. So let's read verse 1 through 4 together. Deuteronomy 12, 1 through 4. These are the statutes and the rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, uh, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess. All the days that you live on the earth, you shall destroy, you shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. So, the Lord telling us? He'll repeat it in verses 29 to 32. He's telling the Israelites and us today that we must put an end to false worship. That if you love the Lord, if the Lord is going to be our God, we must abolish, we must put away false worship. Think about this this morning. And there's a man, we won't give him a name, wouldn't want to do that, but a hypothetical man that's been caught in an affair. His wife catches him in an affair, and as she begins to question him, "What do you mean? What would you? What are you thinking? Why would you do this? Why, what are you? What are you thinking when you're doing this?" He begins to give excuses, and he would say something like, "Well, you know, it's just occasional. It just happens every now and then. Or, or maybe, maybe it's it's not really a big deal because I don't, I don't, I don't love her like I love you. Or, or maybe it's 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 not a big deal, babe. Just calm down. Uh, she's not nearly as pretty as you are." Do You think that would fly? Absolutely not. I mean, there's no way that would work because as a husband, he should have done everything in the world to destroy any place in his own heart where someone else would compete for the love that he rightfully should be giving to his wife. And she should rightfully be angry when those kind of wishy-washy excuses would be given. It's almost silly for us to think about trying to excuse that kind of behavior with those kind of excuses. And the Lord is saying the same thing to the Israelites in this text. The same thing to us this morning. That we should destroy anything that would take place in our hearts, anything that would take place for the Israelites physically, where the love of God should be, where their worship of God should be rightly put. And so if you love the Lord, the Lord would say to them, if you really love me, you will see it with wholehearted, unadulterated, uncompromised faithfulness and worship to God alone. God says that if if you want to know what is the test of your love, if you want to know what is the test of your faithfulness, it's your worship. Who are you worshiping? What are you worshiping? And the first sign of true worship, what's the first sign of true worship in the text? Well, a lot of bonfires, a whole lot of fires all over the land. And to see to understand that, let's do a little bit of understanding of Canaanite worship. As they move into the land, as they cross the Jordan and move into this promised land, they will be faced with these Canaanite religions. And they were a polytheistic people. That means they had a number of gods. They worshipped many gods. And these gods uh, were, were, were inanimate objects. We would know that they didn't have any power in themselves. They're just wood. They're just stone or iron. Later on, they would become gold or silver. They're inanimate objects. They don't do anything. They have no power in and of themselves, these images, these idols. But, as many missiologists would tell you today, that these objects had behind them demonic forces and demonic presences that really did have power, very real power. And though it wasn't all powerful as our God is, there was some demonic forces that were behind these idols and these images in this worship practice. It's much like Hinduism today. Many gods, they would worship hundreds of gods, thousands of gods. I spent some time in India, and we saw this with our very own eyes. Our, our hotel that we were staying in was literally 50 feet from one of these uh, Hindu temples where they would come and worship these many gods, the monkey god and, the, and all these different gods. And we would be sleeping at night trying to lay in our bed, and, and there's no uh, AC or anything like that. And so it's just quiet, just silence. And you would hear all through the night these prayers, these rituals, these chants being lifted up to these false gods. And you could almost feel the, the dark and demonic presence there, just this spiritual heaviness, this darkness. And I would just lay in, in the bed of, in trying to sleep, just staring at the ceiling, because it's, it's almost tangible how uh, the, the sin and the darkness is just so full there. And this is much of the same experience in the Canaanite religion. They would worship these many gods, and they would have and the way these, these worked is that um, these polytheistic pagan religions, uh, they would want to control something, oftentimes in that culture, rain or fertility. They were people that would be agricultural, so they would need rain. And, and, uh, and so they would, they would think that if they could control the God then they could control those circumstances. So they would worship these many gods so that the gods would listen, and then they could use these gods to give rain or fertility or whatever it was that they were seeking. And so they would climb to the highest hill, because again, they thought that that would give them a presence with or uh, an ear with the gods. They would climb to the highest hill and they would construct these objects, these temples, these gods themselves, or the paraphernalia that would be used in the worship. And they would begin their, their worship practices there. A lot of times these gods would be Baal and Ashtaroth, gods that we see listed in the Old Testament. These were the gods of fertility and rain. And they believed that when these two gods, Baal and Ashtaroth, would be having sexual intercourse, then it would give them uh, these benefits, rain and fertility. And so what would they do? They would go up to these hills where they've constructed these temples and constructed these idols and constructed these Ashtoreth poles. And they would begin to... Um, have intercourse with temple prostitutes. They would bring prostitutes up there and have intercourse with them because they believe if the gods saw them doing that, it would make the gods want to do that and the gods would follow suit and then fertility and rain would happen. And this was their worship. This was what they were practicing. And Moses comes along and says that God doesn't just want you to raise a new banner for Yahweh right beside these pagan temples, no, God wants you to go in and destroy any trace or stain of these pagan religions, completely abolish them, burn them, destroy their altars, make, make it so that there's no sight that they were ever even here. And so that's why I say you: the first sign of their true worship would be a lot of bonfires. They would go to these high hills and destroy these places of worship and make it so that these names were removed and that God's name alone would be in this promised land. So what does this mean for us? As we look at a text like this, how do we deal with this? Obviously, there's no hills around here that have temples to Baal and Asherah. So what do we do? Do we go around destroying Muslim mosques or temples? No. Christ will do that. When he returns and he establishes and brings his kingdom to fruition... In heavens, new heavens, and a new earth, he will make it so that his name alone is the only name to be worshipped. But until that time, he has tarried, he has been allowing them to be brought into his kingdom. And so what do we do? How do we apply a text like this? Well, it's personal. It's our hearts. The Lord would be saying to us this morning that you should search your own heart and see if there are any places in it where there are idols, where there are false gods, where you're prioritizing anything other than God are higher than God. What does that look like? That's, that looks like if you're struggling with the sin of pornography, that you wouldn't just say, oh, I've got to get better about this, I've got I've to defeat this, I've got I've to I've kick this habit. No, it looks like going to a brother in Christ and confessing and saying, brother, I'm struggling here with this. I need to exercise this for my life because it's something that I'm, I'm worshiping, I'm addicted to, I've got it as an idol in my heart and I need to cut it out. Brother, will you hold me accountable? Will you ask me weekly if I'm, de- if I'm dealing with this rightfully? Gra- grab a program like Covenant Eyes and put it on your computer so that there's everyday accountability for what you're looking at on your computer screen. That's what it looks like to cut out and to kill off these idols that would be in our hearts. Maybe you're struggling with the sin of greed. It would look like confessing it to a brother and saying, Brother, I'm struggling here with my finances. I look that I'm always spending money on myself and on us and on our things. I'm too materialistic. I'm too worried about income and finances. And I need to exercise that. I need to cut it out of my life. What does it look like? It looks like at the end of the month, printing off your monthly pay, uh, your check statement and saying, brother, would you go through this with me and help me to discern where I'm spending my money uh, unfaithfully? And I know some of us hear that and go, whoa, our finances? That's kind of private, right? We really should open up our finances to someone? What's more important, our privacy or our holiness? It's more important, our privacy or our faithfulness and fidelity to God alone. Here's what I'm saying this morning. I don't know what your issues may be, but whatever the sin issue is in your heart that the Lord may be revealing to you by His Spirit right now, it's for us to say, God, I don't want to be addicted. I don't want to have this idol in my life, and I'll go to radical and extreme measures to kill it. If it's drug or alcohol addiction, it's getting that stuff away, getting it out of your house and getting it out of your sight, whatever that means. Remove those sins and get them out of here. Cut them off and kill them so that they're not competing for fidelity to God in your life. So, number one, destroy the false worship or end false worship. But as we continue through the text, number two, we see that we're to establish true worship in the right place. Establish true worship in the right place. We see this in verses 5 through 14. As we read this part of the chapter, Notice a repetition of words here. This is important because Moses is is being repetitious for a reason. Notice the words place and the word there. Look at verse 5. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and to make his habitation there. There you shall go. Verse 6. And there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices and your tithes and the contribution that you present. Your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice in your households and all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not do according to all that you were doing here today, everyone doing uh, whatever is right in his own eyes, for you have not yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. But when you go over to the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving, Uh, you to inherit and where it is or where he gives you uh, rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety then to the place that the lord your god will choose to make his name dwell there there you shall bring all that i command you your burnt offerings your sacrifices your tithes and your contributions or your contribution that you present and your fine uh, finest vow offerings that you vow to the lord and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters and your male servants and your female servants and the Levite that is within your towns, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes, there you shall bring, offer your burnt offerings and there you shall do all that I'm commanding you. The text is pointing out to us that there is something important about worshiping in the right place for the Israelites. Remember, the Israelites have been in the wilderness. They've been a people in exile. They've been a people wandering as a result of their sin, moving around for 40 years. And a generation of people have died. But in that time, God has been graciously dwelling with them. We've seen that his presence has been amongst them, first in a cloud of fire and then eventually in a tabernacle, a portable place, that the tent that the people would move with them and the Lord's glory would dwell there. His presence would be among them. And now he's saying that as you move into this permanent land, this home that I'm giving you, I'm going to reside with you in a more permanent place. That's the temple. We see that. Though it's not mentioned here as Jerusalem or as the temple, we know that's what ultimately comes when they move into the land. And God's saying, I'm going to dwell with you there. I'm going to be with you. And so the importance for Israel was that his name, the name Yahweh, was going to be associated with a place. It's going to be associated with a location, a spot on the map, that people could say, that's where God's at. What does this mean for us? Well, if you follow the Israelites' journey, if you follow the Old Testament, as you continue in your Old Testament, you'll see that God did dwell with them. He dwelt with them in, again, a pillar of fire first, and then in the wilderness in a tabernacle, and his glory was there. And then as he leads them into the land, a place, he gives them Jerusalem, he gives them a temple. Remember, Solomon builds this temple. David's uh, a murderer, so he's not allowed to build it. But Solomon erects this temple, and God's glory, his presence, he dwells with the people there in that temple. But then you get to Ezekiel 10. And those of us that have been studying Ezekiel in Sunday school, we've seen this recently. Ezekiel 10 and 11, we see that God's glory leaves this temple. God's glory departs as a result of their uh, pagan worship and idolatry, as a result of the Israelites not abiding by what God's telling them in Deuteronomy 12. As a result of their sin, God's glory leaves. And it's this incredibly sad scene. If you go back to Ezekiel 10 and 11, you'll see that. And from that point forward, from that point in Ezekiel, Six hundred years of silence. God's glory is not with his people. God's glory has departed. The word in the text is Ichabod. He's left. His glory has left and departed. He's no longer there by fire, no longer there with them in the tabernacle or the temple. And that's the way the Old Testament closes. And it's a very sad, it's a very sad scene to see for the Israelite people, for God's people to not have his presence. And then you get to Luke, you get to the New Testament. In Luke chapter two, a text that you've all heard, a text that we read every Christmas says this in Luke chapter two, verse eight. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. This is a text that we read so casually at Christmas time, but we have to read this and see that that's 600 years of God's glory being departed, of silence, of God's silence among his people coming back to the earth. And it's no longer in a tabernacle, and it's no longer in a temple or in a cloud of fire. It's in his own son. That God would send Jesus, God himself, to walk and dwell among his people. This is incredibly good news. That he, Jesus, is the place where God's glory would dwell in full. And This is the gospel. That Jesus is the place. Jesus is the way in which we worship the Father. Colossians 1, 19 says that for in him, Christ, the fullness of God, was pleased to dwell. That God put upon Christ this this incredible, awesome experience that we get to be through Christ in relationship with God. He's the place. So the Israelites had a, a place, a location, or a spot on the map where they would show up and God's presence would be there. At least until their sin and rebellion made it so that the glory of God departed. We have a person that is fully God that came and dwelt among us. And you see this, that as a result of Israel's sin, God's glory departed from the place. And as a result of our sin, God's glory is magnified in the person of Jesus Christ. What an incredible turn of events for us. So yes, we see Christ, the person, is now the place where God's glory dwells. And we see that in the New Testament. But it also means something else for us. The Bible also tells us about another place where God's glory, where God will reside, where God will dwell. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 3 verse 16. Do you not know that you are the, God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. You get to 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? This is exactly what we've seen in the first four verses of Deuteronomy 12. How is there any reconciliation? How is there any agreement, 2 Corinthians says, that with the temple of God and idols? 2 Corinthians 6 goes on. For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Those of us that are believers, those of us that have been redeemed by this one Christ that came and lived a perfect life and died upon the cross for us, those that are Christians by the death of Christ, we are that place. We are the temple, the scriptures say. We no longer have to travel miles to a building, to a temple where God's glory dwelt, but he has put his presence within us. He lives in our, in our hearts, in our, in our souls. He's residing with us, and the implications of this are huge. We won't go into this this morning for the sake of time, but this week as you go to growth groups, this is something for you to discuss. What are the implications of this, that God's revealed to us through his scriptures that we are the temple of the Lord, that, that God's spirit resides in us, he lives in us? What does this mean for the way we think about fitness and health? What does this mean for the way we prioritize body and spirit? I think we so often get into this dualistic idea that one is lesser than the other, what does this mean for the way we think about a church building? If God said his spirit is in us, so that we are the dwelling, then this is not the church. These are just four walls that we meet in. We are the church. We are where his which spirit dwells. I think there was a reason back in the day they used to call these meeting houses. You know this used to be Poplar Spring Meeting House? We're the, we're the church. This is, just a, this is just a dwelling that we gather in. That as the people who are indwelled by the spirit... We all get together in this building. What an incredible thought. So Israel is supposed to deal with false worship, put an end to false worship. We see in the text, though, that Israel is also given very specific commands about the place that they should worship the Lord. Worship God in the right place. And we see the New Testament understanding of that is that Jesus Christ is the, is the person, is the place where God's glory was fully known and how we might fully have relationship with him and see his glory is in the face of Christ. But number, three, number three, we continue true worship in the right way. So we not only start worship in the right place, at Christ, but we continue true worship in the right way. If you continue in the text, verse 15 and 16, demonstrate this to us. Verse 15, however, you may slaughter and eat meat within any of your towns as much as you desire, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. The unclean and clean may eat of it as of the gazelle, as of the deer. So in their worship, it's included the sacrificing of animals. We've seen in Leviticus, as we walk through that book, what that looked like in more detail, but as they sacrificed animals to the Lord, we see in here in this text in Deuteronomy 12 that God didn't require every animal that they killed to be an offering to him. He gives them freedom. You can eat as much as you desire, the text says, according to the blessing of the Lord. And I think there's some wisdom there for us in that. According to the blessing of the Lord, you can eat as much as you desire according to what he's blessed you with. And the wisdom there would be that God is saying, I've given you this amount of blessing, this much livestock, this much of your herd. And you can slaughter and eat it, and you can enjoy it. I've given it to you. It's a part of the promise that you've inherited. But don't go beyond that degree. Don't, don't just live right up to that edge. Don't just, if, if I've given you this much, don't just consume this much of it in January and February, and then the rest of the year, you've got to just skimp by because you've scoured what you've had early. To live according to the blessings I've given you. We would do well to heed that. To live according to the means. Live according to what the Lord has blessed us with. You notice also that it says for the unclean and the clean alike. You could be ceremonially unclean, again pointing us back to Leviticus, for completely natural reasons. We won't go into all those this morning. But God's saying that everyone, everyone, clean and unclean alike, those that are unclean may come and eat and enjoy that's good news. God's being gracious to them in that. And then you continue and you see the text says, as of the gazelle and as of the deer, and all of the deer hunters rejoiced. Some of you found your new favorite verse in the Bible, right? If you enjoy game and hunting, the Lord does too. He actually puts it in his word. It's good. Vincent's good. Deer, deer bombs. It's good stuff. Well, what do we learn? It's that God is good to his children. And even in the specificity of what he requires in worship, even in the details, in the nitty-gritty details of what he requires of us, he's good to us. And that we benefit from it. Verse 17 through 19, he goes into more specifics about what this worship should look like. In verse 17, he says, your tithes, your offerings, your free will offerings are not to be offered at home like the offerings we saw in 15 and 16. In verse 15 and 16, eat and enjoy. Eat eat until until you've met your desire according to the blessing that the Lord's given you. But then he moves into some specificity and he says, hey, but these things, tithes, offering, and free will offerings can't be offered at home like I just said. Verse 18, but you eat them before the Lord your God in the place that the Lord your God will choose. He's given them some specifics that must be done where he's told them. And he says that it's an all-inclusive offering. So your son and daughter, your male and female servants, the Levites who do not have a share of the land, make sure you include them. Because these these specifics that I'm giving you, it's it's for your good, but it's for everybody. It's to be inclusive of, of everyone in your land. And then you get to verses 20 through 25. And man, what a good set of verses. I don't know if I can get through these without getting too excited, but I'll try. Verse 20. And when the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he's promised you, and you say, I will eat meat because you crave meat, you may eat meat whenever you desire. And all God's people said, Amen. Verse 21, If the place that the Lord your God will choose to put his name uh, there is too far from you, then you may kill any of your herd and flock which the Lord has given you as I have commanded you, and you may eat within your own towns whenever you desire, just as the gazelle and the deer is eaten, so you may eat of it. The unclean and the clean alike may eat of it. So take that, vegetarians, right? If you crave meat, eat meat. meat eat as much as you desire, and that's good. And I'm kidding, kind of. <laughs> if you guys know me personally, I don't love a lot of fruits and vegetables. I love meat. I'm, I'm a meativore, a meatitarian. And so uh, this is really good for me. This is like uh, soul food right here. I mean, this is good. God's letting them know when they crave meat, they should eat meat. That's a part of the blessing. That's a part of the promise. Again, but not the blood. Verses twenty-three and sixteen. Don't, but that'd be weird, anyways, right? Don't, don't eat the blood. Verse twenty-six. But the holy things that are due from you, your vow offerings that you shall take. You shall go up to the place where the Lord will choose and offer the burnt offerings. The flesh and the blood on the altar of the Lord your God, the blood of your sacrifices shall be poured out on the altar of the Lord your God, but the flesh you may eat. Be careful to obey all these words. Hear the specificity there. Be careful to obey all the words that I command to you, that it may go well with you and with your children after you forever. When you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God, so that they could eat this meat when they wanted, when they desired it, and it was good for them, it was a blessing to them, They they had the freedom to do that. There were some holy things that were a different matter. These vow offerings, these burnt offerings, these blood offerings. There was some specificity there that they should not cross. Moses says, you would be careful to do these things as the way I'm commanding you. In verse 26, you shall go to the place that the Lord will choose. Why was this important? God was making a clear distinction for his people between the sacred and the secular. He was saying that with the secular, with the the deer and the gazelle and these these offerings that you consume, you can do it at your house and you can do it to your full and it's good for you. It's a blessing for you as it's still worship. Notice that. It's still worship for you, but there's some freedom. But with the sacred, with these other things, God is saying it is mine and it's all mine and you need to follow it with the utmost careful specificity. You offer it to me in the way that I'm requiring it. You saw that in Leviticus in more detail, in those specific details. But what do we learn? How do we apply something like this? Well, think about, I think it would be good for us to think about the way this morning that we allocate the sacred and the secular in our own lives. The way we think through those things. We've been given much freedom in Christ. In Christ, we've not been given these dietary regulations. In Christ, we can even have bacon, praise the Lord. And that's a good thing. And all of these things that the the Jewish people observe in specificity, these unclean and clean laws that the Lord gives them in Leviticus, are, are, are fulfilled in Christ. And so we don't have those binding on us in the same way. But we should still think about the way in our own hearts and lives we think about the secular and the sacred. My dad tells me of my, grand, my great-grandmother, his grandmother. I never met her. But dad would tell me that as she was in her 80s and 90s, and this was back in the 60s or 70s, that she, would, uh, she was on a fixed income. And she would receive her check every month in the mail from the government. And she would call my dad down to her house. And she was disabled in a wheelchair by that time and she would hand dad the check and say go to the bank and cash the check and he would do that for her and bring it back to her and as soon as he got back he would I don't know what the money was it was very little back in that day she would take that money and she would set aside her tithe immediately And my dad would watch her do this. She would set this aside and put it in an envelope, and she would bring that to the Lord. And then she would bring this other over here, and she would give dad like a a nickel or whatever it was for doing all this for, and he would go get him a a soda down at the, the gas station or whatever. And then she would take this other, and that's what she lived on. And that's a simple principle, and I know many of you already do that as well, but the way my great-grandmother was thinking was, this is the Lord's. And so before I have to pay any bills or pay for anything that I require, food, I'm setting aside the Lord's, and it's his, and I'm not even going to touch it. It's already in an envelope with his name on it, and it's his. And my dad saw that, and it had an impact on him, and he modeled that for us. And we would begin to take up that practice. What I'm saying there is that we should have these categories where this is the Lord's, and I'm not even going to touch it. It's his, and, 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 it's, and it's his from the beginning. It's his. And so what does that look like in our lives? Well, it looks like with our money, something like what my great-grandmother did, that we say, this is the Lord's. It's his. I'm setting aside for him, and I'm not even going to touch it. But it also maybe be our time, 6 to 7 a.m. That's the Lord's. I'm not going to touch it. It don't matter if the phone rings. It doesn't matter if kids are up and needing my attention. It doesn't matter if emails need answering. That's the Lord's, and I'm not going to touch it. It's set aside to Him. It's sacred. It's mine in the Lord's time, and it's not going to be. Uh, I'm not going to budge on that. It could look like our talents. I had a friend in high school who really felt like and believed that the Lord had given him the ability to sing and play the guitar. And so we would form these, these cover bands and play in school talent shows and those kind of things, and he wouldn't join us because he, he, he truly believed the Lord had given him that gift and he wanted to use it for God alone. And so he wouldn't play those kind of songs with us. That's respectable. I don't think that all of us have to have that conviction, but it was his. That was sacred. It was the Lord's, and he had, he had set it aside to the Lord for the Lord to use. I think it looks like our, our, our possessions I had a friend in college that their uncle, his aunt and uncle, owned a lake house. And when real estate started booming, they could have sold that and and used it, and and it could have been a a buku of money. But they kept it because they believed the Lord had given it to them, and they used it for staff retreats for their church, for camps, and for marriage retreats. And they said, this is is the Lord's property. It's not even ours. And they they stewarded it as if it was his, and nothing's going to touch that. And I don't know what that looks like in your life, but I think it begs for us to ask the question, how are we thinking about our own lives, our time, our money, our possessions, our talents? How are we setting aside things that we're saying, this is the Lord's, and I'm not going to compromise there. Because the reality is, if we are his, everything is sacred. Everything we own is his. We're just stewarding it. But I think it would be wise for us to fence off some things in our lives and say, God, I'm I'm not even going to touch this. This is unquestionably yours. So we see this in the text. What are we called to do? We're called to end false worship. We see that with Israel. Put an end to anything that would lure us away from Christ. Number two, begin begin true worship at the right place. For us, that is the face of Christ. He is the place where worship happens. Number three, to continue worship in the right way. And then finally, number four, and we'll end here. Number four, confront those that would lead us away from true worship. Confront those that would lead us away from true worship and again we 're putting chapters twelve and thirteen together because I think they continue twelve or thirteen continues this theme that twelve has started the beginning of twelve deals with false worship and you see that book ended with twenty nine through thirty two and then you move through the rest of chapter twelve and you see dealing with worship at the right place, dealing with worship in the right way, and then you get to chapter thirteen it continues by confronting other threats. That would draw us away from worship of God alone. You know, in the in, in chapter 12, in the beginning of 12, you you're, the, the Israelites are told to break down these idols, break down these altars and burn them, these worship paraphernalia, these these uh these poles that were uh used in worship. All of this was to be done away with. Now you move to chapter 13. And it's no longer these external things anymore, but it's internal. It's removing these threats um, that would deal with our hearts. And you see the way that unfolds in chapter 13. So what's the main point here in chapter 13? That we learn that if we're to be faithful to God and keep the first commandment, if we're to worship God alone and worship him uh, solely, then we must be ready to denounce everything else we value if it competes for his worship. That's what 13 would teach us, and we see that in three ways. Number one, we see it in leaders that we formerly uh, were impressed with, or leaders that formerly uh, had supernatural uh, powers or um, abilities. You see that in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 13. Look at it real quickly. If a prophet... Or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder he tells you comes to pass. And if he says, "Let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them," you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. The Lord your God is testing you to know whether the love of the Lord your God, uh, to know whether the love, uh, love the Lord your God uh, with all your heart and with all your soul. Verse 4, and you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he's taught you rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery and to make you leave the way that the Lord your God commands you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises, what are you to do? Assess his words. Assess what he's saying. Even if he's performed these signs, even if he's done these miraculous things, predicted the future through dreams or worked incredible miracle signs, what are they saying? If it's not the gospel, if it's not the word of God, if it's not what you've been handed, then it doesn't matter what they do. So what does that look like for us? It looks like it doesn't matter. If a man has a 50,000 person hearing, or if he's preaching all over the world through TV and internet, or if he's flying around on this jet airplane and has this incredible personality that people are attracted to, if he's not, in preaching, if he's not preaching the entirety of the word of God, do not listen to him. Cut him off. If you hear a preacher or tell you, a preacher or teacher tell you that you just need to believe in yourself or that you just need to, 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 to embrace positivity and you'll be okay, that's not the Word of God. That's not what the Word teaches us. Don't listen to that junk. That's what the Word's telling us. It doesn't matter how amazing it looks or what kind of fame or success it looks like he's having. Don't listen to him. And then verse 5 says that he should be put to death. Why? Because he's taught you rebellion. High treason. He's led you to to deny the God who is real and who has all power. So what about us? Do we kill false teachers? No. Why? Because we don't have that type of theocratic relationship with God. God's not called us to kill these people. Why? Because he's still tarrying. He's still allowing by his grace, even they have a chance to be saved and to worship him. So what do we do? We exercise the last word of that. You shall purge the evil from your midst. By in for Israel's context, that was killing the false prophet. For us, first Corinthians five, Paul tells us what that looks like. Paul's walking through, and you can read all of First Corinthians five and see what those specific details look like. But if you look in verse thirteen, you see that this the ending of verse thirteen sounds awful similar to Deuteronomy thirteen. So 1 Corinthians 5.13 says, uh, God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. He's talking about church discipline and the way that you would have false teachers come in and what their response should be as a New Testament church. They're not told to kill the person, but they should purge them. They should get them out. They should cut that off, not listen to it any longer. So I encourage you to read 1 Corinthians 5 and even discuss what that looks like in your small groups, growth groups this week but not there, it, just, it continues. It's not just those religious leaders or teachers that would be able to impress you, even with miracles and signs and wonders. If you go to verse six, it's even family members that are close to you. It says this in verse six, if a brother, the son of your mother, or your son, or your daughter, or your wife, you embrace, or your friend who is as, cl- who is as your own soul entices you secretly saying, let us go serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known, some of the gods of the peoples who are around you, whether near near, you are far from you, from one end of the earth to the other. You shall not yield to him, listen to him, you sh- your, nor your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. And your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, afterward the hand of all the people. So this is even closer to us, right? Closer than religious leaders. This is our own family. This is our own flesh and blood. A brother or a daughter or a wife or a, a husband or a, a friend who is like your own soul. These are the most close, uh, These are the closest intimate relationships that an individual can have. Notice also in verse 6 that if he entices you secretly. So this is not a pu- public teaching or proclamation of false doctrine. This is in the, the privacy of your own home, with your own family, with those that are, are closest to you. What are we to do? Don't yield, verse 8. Don't listen, verse 8. Don't pity him. Don't spare him or conceal him, verse 8. They're commanded to kill him by stoning him. Now, of course, we don't kill our own family, friends. We don't kill anyone. So how do we apply this? I think it's that we would come to a place in our own hearts that our relationship with God is more important than any other human relationship we have. Our marriage to God is more important than even our own marriage to our spouse Any relationship we have, even with our spouse on this earth, is temporary. It's confined by temporal parameters, death. Our our marriage with God is eternal. It has to take priority. So, does our relationship with God hold more weight in our life than our relationship with wife, kids, brother, sister, friend? That's the question for us this morning. Will we allow a loved one's misinformed understanding of God to affect our faithfulness to him? That's the question. And then finally, and we're closing, whole communities that have denied God. If you look at verse 12, if you hear in one of your cities which the Lord your God is giving you to dwell there, that certain worthless fellows, I love it that they call it, that the Lord calls them worthless fellows. Verse 13, if these worthless fellows have gone out among you and have drawn away the inhabitants of the city saying, let us go and serve other gods which you have not known, then you shall inquire and make search and ask diligently. And behold, if it be true, and certain that such an abomination has been done among you, you shall surely put the inhabitants of the city to the sword, devoting it to destruction, all who are in it and its cattle, with the edge of the sword. You shall gather it. Uh, you shall gather all its spoils in the midst of its open square and burn the city and all its spoil with fire, and the whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. It shall be a heap forever, and you shall and it shall not be built again. This text is calling us to deal uh, quickly. But but not too quickly to go uh, carefully and make sure there's, with diligence, make sure this is the truth because these are drastic measures. Make sure it's true what you've been told. And if it's the case, then you are to take drastic measures to renounce, to condemn that city because of the waywardness, because of the rebellion, because of the false worship. So what's the point for us this morning? If we see an entire group, an entire nation, an entire city, an entire political organization, an entire society that's going away from God, we should not shy away from renouncing speaking publicly about the sinfulness of that group of that people even if that means our popularity even if that means uh persecution in our own life even if it's unpopular for us to say that about that group isn't that judging doesn't the bible tell us not to judge no it's 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 being clear that the word of god is true and unchanging and we're repeating his word So we're not judging. The Bible, God himself is saying that's sin and we're just calling sin, sin. So we should take drastic measures to make sure that any threats to the worship of God alone are dealt with in our lives. So some questions as we close. Are you dealing with false worship in your own heart? Are you putting an end to those things in your own heart that would lead you away from fidelity to God alone? Are you confronting the people or the things externally that would try to lead you away? Those maybe that are even closest to you, that would draw you away secretly. Are you offering to God the first fruits of your life? Are you fencing off things that you would say, God, this is yours, and I'm not going to touch it. It's yours alone. It's my time, it's my money, it's my possessions, my talents, whatever that may be. I'm giving it to him, and I'm not going to compromise in that. And then finally, if you come to the terms with the exclusivity of Christ as being the person through which worship happens. There's no room for anyone else. That's, the text is clear there. That, that Christ has replaced the need for a temple or a tabernacle. He is the person that God's glory dwelt in. And he is the one through which we have the ability and the access to the Father. I pray that we would know that. I pray that we would cherish that and worship him alone. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. God, I pray this morning that as we've seen Moses' final sermon and statements on worship that we would begin asking in our own hearts, where are we at? What are the sins that would lure us away? What are the things in our own lives that would rear their ugly heads and combat and battle for worship in our own hearts, priority in our own hearts over you? God, help us to do uh, radical things in our lives, to exercise and to cut out those things, to kill them in our own hearts. Help us to be about killing sin. Thank you for Christ, who's not just a place or a dot on a map or a location where we can go and be in your presence, but he is the one who has saved us, and we now have your spirit residing in us. Father, we worship you for that. We thank you for that. Help us to walk faithfully this week. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. If you'd stand, we're going to sing. We're going to respond to him. If you've never trusted Christ, if you've never seen him as the one through which you can have sins forgiven and access to God, I would love to talk to you about that. I'll be down at the front now and after the service. Let's respond and do business with the Lord.